And Father, over the rest of this service, we, we, we lay it at your feet, Lord. Everything we do, um, not only on Sunday mornings, but everything we do through every day and aspect of our lives, Lord, we want to bring glory and honor to you. And so as we go through the rest of the service and as we dive into your word, Lord, now we ask you to, to be here and to speak powerfully and clearly to us through your word. May, may, you, may you change our hearts this morning because of what you have to say in your word. So, Father, anything that we have in our lives this morning or our minds or our hearts that may distract us from hearing you, Lord, we pray that you would remove that and help us to be attentive on what you have to say. Father, we ask that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we're looking at the last part of Titus chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you or if you want to grab your Bible from in front of you and open up to Titus chapter 2, that would be good. We're we're looking at the last verses except for the very last one. So we're holding off on verse 15 um, till next week. But this week we're looking at chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. And uh, just remember, this comes, this passage comes right after a long section talking about the importance of discipleship in a congregation between the older men and the younger men and the older women and the younger women. And it goes on and says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. A few years ago, Rachel and I were were sitting in this teaching session and we were, it was a, a, a leader from a Christian organization um, talking to us about all of the work that they're doing across the world. And they're going into all these different small villages and, and doing work. And, and this leader was saying that their primary work that they were doing is they were going into these small villages throughout the world and, and working to help husbands treat their wives with respect and dignity because that's a major issue in lots of parts of the world. And uh, it's a really good work that they were doing. And so they would go into these communities and they would have classes helping to empower the women and do that. And they'd held classes to help the men treat their wives rightly, with dignity and respect. But, but after an hour, almost over an hour sitting in this session, Rachel and I noticed that uh, this Christian leader had never mentioned the gospel. Not once. And so... Uh, Rachel raised her hand and just asked, um, so how, you know, this is great work that you're doing, but how, how does the gospel affect the work that you're doing? How does the gospel play a part of this? And the leader kind of got frustrated and snarky a little bit and said, we're not going to push the gospel down people's throats. We, we're not there for that. We're just there to help the, the husbands treat their wives with respect. So Rachel raised her hand again. And she said, why would husbands treat their wives 
rightly if they don't know who Christ is and their hearts haven't been changed. And the leader got quiet, changed the subject, and moved on. Um, and of course, of course, we, we help people, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Of course we do. Of course, we've been called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so I will serve and bless the atheist who is screaming at God. I will help them and I will serve them. And, and, and I will help whoever is out there. And yet, we're not really truly loving our neighbors if we never get to the gospel. Um, husbands will not truly love their wives if they have not experienced and known the love of Christ for his church. We can't truly love our wives or love our husbands unless our hearts have been changed by the gospel and by the Spirit of God. And more, I think, importantly, what does it profit a man to treat his wife better but lose his soul? What does it profit a woman to, for her husband to treat her better and to lose her soul? This morning, this passage has powerful, it speaks really powerfully of the gospel. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And next week might be even more of my favorite passage. But we're getting into the stuff that gets me going. Paul writes, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I mean, it's painting this picture of Christ who he gave himself for us. He, He laid down his life for us to do two things, to redeem us and to purify to redeem us and to purify us. And, and, and it's painting a picture that, that I keep going back to this, this scene in, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And so if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I, would, I encourage you to read it. It's really good. And it's about a story of a man named Christian who's on a journey to the celestial city, right? So it's pretty, pretty bluntly allegorical, talking about the Christian life walking through. And, and actually this scene that I think of He's not even talking about our life in sin, but I think it's a good uh, scriptural example. There's this moment where Christian is traveling down the road with another man named Hopeful. And they were told not to go into this one place. Don't go there. That's not going to be good for you. But they go there anyways. And they get into this castle and they're captured by a giant brought down into this dark, dingy, dirty dungeon and chained up down in the dungeon. And every day, the giant comes down with a bat and beats them within inches of their life. And then he says, I'm going to keep doing this every single day. You might as well take your life. And then he walks away. And then he comes back the next day and finds them alive and takes the bat and then beats them again within inches of their life. And he keeps doing this over and over every single day. And as I read that picture, I think Scripture says, apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin, trapped in a dark, dingy dungeon, chained up to our sin with Satan as our cruel 
master coming down and beating us within inches of our lives, driving us to despair and giving us no hope, saying, there's no hope for you. And yet the picture that's painted is that we have a Savior who came in to redeem us. He came down into that dungeon and kicked the giant in the teeth and said, you've got no power here. He, the Bible says he mortally wounded Satan. He's done. Kicked him in the teeth and, and broke free from our chains, which is just redeeming us. He cleans us off all the dirt and the grime that's been on us while we were in that dungeon. He cleans us off and purifies us. And then he says, that, that, that giant, he's got nothing. He doesn't own you anymore. You're, you're mine. And I'm a good master. And, and my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I will bring you into eternal life. He makes us his own. And, I mean, that's what happens when we look to Christ in faith and trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. He comes in and he rips us out of this dungeon of hopelessness and despair and makes us his own and says, you're mine. I've redeemed you and I've purified you. But he also does something else. After he's purified us, after he's redeemed us, after he's made us his own, it then says he makes us zealous for good works. I mean, zealous means like passion, excited. He, he makes us excited to do good works. He makes us excited to follow him. And uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, the very first question and answer, it ends this way. And I, it's, I think it really beautifully describes what we want to talk about. It says, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Because you belong to him, Christ comes in and he starts working in your life so that you are wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And I mean, this is this is really, really important stuff. I mean, I think it affects every aspect of our lives and, and it really affects every aspect of our church. Because people are only truly obedient when they are obedient from the heart. People are only truly obedient when Christ has come in and grabbed their heart of stone and removed it and given them a heart of flesh and then filled them with the Holy Spirit and sent them on their way to live the Christian life. And what that means is it does us no good to try to guilt people into doing the right thing. If we try to motivate people to do the right thing by just making them feel guilty and heaping condemnation on them, guess what? That's not real obedience, because true obedience only comes from a heart that's been changed by Jesus Christ. It also doesn't do us any good to try to force obedience upon people by, by heavily wielding authority over them and just trying to make them do what's right. Because true obedience only comes from a heart that's, that's transformed by Jesus Christ. Any other obedience is not in line with the gospel, any other kind of obedience that's motivated by guilt or by pressure from authority, all that ends up happening from that is you end up creating a bunch of moralistic Pharisees. And we know that Jesus didn't have much good to say about the moralistic Pharisees. He, they, they ticked him off. But, but we know, on the other hand, that, 
that when we give our lives to Christ and he, he, he sets us free from our sins, he forgives our sins, I mean, that doesn't mean that our lives are automatically perfect, right? I mean, we all should be honest enough with ourselves to know that we're messed up. And, and we, we give our heart, you know, Jesus comes in, he changes our heart and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. And then we get distracted and we fall off and we mess up because our sinful nature is still there. Our sinful nature is still grabbing hold of us and trying to say, no, you are mine. But now we have the spirit inside of us saying, no, you're mine. And so the sinful nature is trying to pull you away from Christ and, and the spirit's trying to pull you to Christ. And so our passage this morning says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it teaches us. And I actually like the translation, the ESV translates it, it trains us. It's like, it's like a training program. So the grace of God appeared through Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth. And the grace of God appears as we preach the gospel to people. And when we preach the gospel, it brings salvation to people. But then the gospel not only just brings salvation, it also brings a training program along with it. And another word I would rather see it use instead of teaching or training is actually parenting. Um, because actually the core of this Greek word is like child. It's like child rearing. And so when Christ comes in and says, you are mine and I'm adopting you into the family of God, it says at that point, then the gospel is going to come alongside you and the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit are going to come alongside you in this family and they're going to parent you. And they're going to shepherd you. And they're going to teach you how to live in this family. How to, how to walk in newness of life. And it's a pretty basic parenting program. Or a pretty basic training program. It's really going to teach you two things. It says the gospel, the, the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to say yes or to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And it's saying that's the heart of this training program in the Christian life. We're going to be taught how to say no to certain things, and we're going to be taught to say yes to certain things. And so we're going to say no to anything that leads us back into sin and death and captivity, and we're going to say yes to anything that pulls us closer to Christ and the life that He's called us to live, which is self-controlled, upright, and godly. I mean, that's really the essence of the Christian life, saying no to some things and saying yes to other things. And, and it's important, I think, when I talk about this to say that the Christian life isn't primarily categorized by saying no. Um, even though a lot of people want to picture it that way, right? Well, all you Christians, right? All you ever do is say no to everything. You don't do this. You don't do that. Thou shalt not this. Thou shalt not that. You just are a bunch of fuddy duds who say no to everything. And yet the reality is, is that the Christian life is saying no to things that are going to kill you. And yes, to things that are going to bring you life. And the no is not the end goal. The no is only a means to bring us toward something greater. And the reality is we do this all the time in every aspect of our lives. 
Um, tomorrow morning, after having a snowy day and everything, you're going to wake up unmotivated and tired and not going to feel like going to work. Or if you are retired, you're not going to feel like doing something. <laughs> and and you're, you're going to have a choice to make tomorrow morning. You're going to have the choice to say yes to your unmotivation and no to your job or whatever you have uh, going on for the day. Or you're going to have a choice to say no to your unmotivation and yes to your job. Right? But... I was, as I was thinking about that this week, it's, it's kind of interesting to someone who regularly gets up every morning and says no to their unmotivation and says yes to their job. Nobody comes to them and says, man, why do you got to be so negative all the time? You just are always talking about not being lazy, not being, you know, not being dishonest. You're just you're so negative. You just say no to things all the time. Nobody ever says that because everybody knows that when you say no to unmotivation, you're saying Yes to hard work, loyalty, responsibility. You're saying yes to something that's much better. Because when you say no to certain things, you're always saying yes to something else. And one of my favorite examples of this in Scripture is Moses. And Hebrews is talking about Moses, and it says this about his life. By faith, Moses when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. And another way of saying that, in the same way that our passage this morning is saying it, Moses said no to the power and the pleasure and the wealth of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And he could have been prince. He could have had it all. He could have had anything he wanted. And yet he said no. I'm saying no to power, pleasure, and wealth of Egypt. And I'm going to say yes to Christ. Now, why did he do that? He said, because Christ is of greater value than anything the world has to offer. I'm saying no to these things because there's something way greater over here in Christ that he has to offer. And so it says he even considered the disgrace for the sake of knowing Christ, the mocking, the persecution, the ridicule that he experienced for following Christ. He said that in it of itself is more valuable than the power, prestige, wealth and pleasure that Egypt had to offer. He said, yeah, I'm going to say no to those things because there's something way better going on over here that I'm going to say yes to. And it says right at the end there, it says he did all of this because he was looking ahead to his reward. His eyes were lifted above this present life into the future. And our passage this morning says the same thing. It says that that while we're being trained to say no to certain things, that, that drive us to death and despair, and we're saying yes to other things that lead to life. It says we're doing, we're saying no and yes while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says as we're making these decisions on a daily basis, I'm not going to do this and I am going to do this, we're doing that with this eye on the end in mind that we have a hope coming. 
the, the glorious appearing, the second coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when He comes again and gives us new bodies and brings a new heavens and a new earth and, and has a treasure in store for us in heaven, that's there. And, and just like Moses, as we live this life and as we say no to some things and, and yes to other things, we do that looking toward this and looking toward this reward that is on the horizon. And we say no to anything that's going to take that reward away from us. And yes to anything that's going to bring that reward closer. And I think what that means is we should probably spend a lot more time meditating on our future reward. Um, and I admit I don't do this well either. And every time I hit a passage like this, I get convicted about it and think I need to meditate on this more. Because it's really easy for us to get caught up in our daily lives, running kids here, there, grandkids, going to work, doing whatever. You just kind of get caught up doing everything. And our eyes get stuck on everything that's here, all this stuff that's fading. All these things that God says is just like a breath. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And, and we don't lift our eyes up for a moment and just remember that Christ has something waiting for us on the horizon. Something of greater wealth than anything this world has to offer. So we need to take some time and meditate on that. Think about it. Be reminded of it. But it's also important to remember that we don't meditate on that future reward in order to remove ourselves from this life. And we don't, we don't go hide in a hut in the woods and think about the future life and call that the Christian life, he says we need to actually meditate on the future life because when we know that that reward is in store, it changes the actions we make now. It empowers us to say no to some things and yes to other things. And so when you go through life and you're tempted to commit adultery, you say no to that because you're reminded of the greater reward that Christ has for you in this life and in the life to the next. When you go through this life and you're and you're tempted to lie and cheat and steal or whatever the temptation is, you say I'm saying no to that because I'm reminded that Christ has a reward for me in this life and in a greater reward in the future and so I'm going to say no to this to say yes to what Christ has in store for me. Or when you're tempted to take vengeance on someone who has wronged you, you say no to that because you want to say yes to the greater reward that Christ has in store for you. And if we're ever going to say no to any of these thou shalt nots in the Ten Commandments or any of the thou shalt nots in the Bible, if we're going to say no to them and say no to them joyfully from the heart, we have to realize that we're saying no to them because we're taking something greater in store over here. This reward that Christ has held out for us. I mean, that's the power of the gospel. I mean, the gospel brings forgiveness of sins, which is great and, and glorious and freeing, and yet it also brings with us freedom from sin and, and enlists us in a training program of righteousness. That the gospel frees us from sin and then says, here, now let me teach you how to live out this Christian life. I mean, the gospel is so powerful it takes broken, messed up, angry, difficult frustrating sinners and breaks them from their chains, cleans them up, brings them into a family, and then teaches them how to live the life that Christ, that God created them to live. A life that looks like Jesus Christ. And we don't ever help anybody look more like Jesus Christ by using guilt 
or power or just yelling at them to become more like Jesus Christ. That change only comes into someone's life through the preaching of the gospel. And the gospel is the power of the church, the power that we have to go out and bring influence and change in the world and in our culture. And so if you're tired of living in a messed up, corrupt, frustrating world, the first step is to start by preaching the gospel to yourself. Yes, even if you're a believer, you need the gospel. (laughs) The gospel is there to walk with us from beginning to the end, to train us in how to live the life that he has created us to live. The gospel is training us to say no to sin and death and to say yes to life. And I don't remember who said it, but the change you want to see in the world needs to start in you. And so if you're sick and tired of a corrupt, messed up culture, preach the gospel to yourself. Embrace the gospel in yourself. Let it train you to walk and live in the world. And then as you go out into the world, being more trained in the gospel, then go out with the only weapon we have to bring about change, which is the gospel. Um, I 100% fully believe that the only way we will ever see any change or transformation in our world and in our culture is through the gospel. Because the gospel is the only way that hearts are changed. It's the only way that lives are changed. And when individuals' hearts and lives are changed, so are cultures, societies, and worlds. So we go out with the gospel and we trust God to work and do his, and change hearts. Let's pray. Lord, what a gift you've given us in the gospel. What a glorious salvation you've brought into our lives. Lord, we too, each one of us, were lost in sin, trapped in a dungeon and being beaten repeatedly by our sin. And yet you freed us and pulled us out. Father, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for the way you bring redemption and forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for the way you you pull us out of the pit, set us on a rock and point us in the right way and train us and teach us how to walk. Lord, help each one of us, no matter whether we've been following you for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, five months, a day, May we more fully understand the gospel. May you be patient with us and train us in the gospel. Change our hearts, Lord, to follow you in joy. And then, Father, send us out and empower us in the world. And may your gospel spread. Spread beyond the walls of this church into the community, to our state, and to our nation, and change hearts, change lives, change culture, Lord. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Father, use us as your people to go out with the gospel. And then we pray that you would work in hearts and lives to change them through the preaching of the gospel. May all this be done for your glory and your kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.